to begin by always thinking of love as an action rather than a feeling is one way in which using the word in this manner automatically assumes accountability and responsibility. Bell Hooks. Bending Not Breaking. The Gifts of Imperfection Edition. Episode 2. Love, Belonging, and the Things That Get in the Way. Bending Not Breaking, the Gifts of Imperfection edition. This is Ben Pruitt, your host for this mini-series, and this is our second episode of the Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection deep dive, and I'm really excited that we're doing this. It's um, it's working out so far. We're getting some feedback that it was a really great first episode for content-wise, and here we are. We're on episode two. So we are reading this book in sections and discussing how moments of the Avatar universe align and brush up against the learnings from this book. And again, just to reiterate for everybody that my hope is that you will not have to read or buy the book in order to enjoy the content of these episodes. But I do think it would enrich the experience as it is the source material for our content for a few weeks. So if you do intend to purchase the book, just remember that your local bookstores appreciate the sales way more than corporations do, and and an even better option would be to find a local bookstore owned by a black or indigenous or a person of color uh, and support that way as well. Um, all right, here we are. So we're, again, I, I guess it's just worth reminding us that we're still playing with the format of these episodes. So... Uh, they'll change and adapt as we move through them, but of course, as mentioned before in episode one of this mini-series, is one goal is I want to make sure you have the page numbers and or chapters that we are working on so that we can be all on the same page, both <laughs> literally and figuratively. So this week, our intention is to engage with everything through the third chapter in the book, which in the 10th anniversary edition is page 65. And then next week, we will read uh, through the next chapter, which is we're going to do start doing guide one guidepost at a time. So we're going to do guidepost one next week, and I'm really excited about that as well. And finally, before we kind of get to the legit content, um, if you are enjoying these episodes, uh, just a reminder that we are offering a Patreon-exclusive opportunity for people who may want to work on their, you know, wholehearted journey. And you can meet with me one-on-one once a month in which we will engage with the Avatar universe. Um, Or if you prefer a different uh, fictional universe, we can definitely do that instead. But what we'll do is we'll kind of uh, work on your your goals for uh, cultivating more uh, wholeheartedness using this as a template in this guide and the fictional universe of your choice. And so my goal is to kind of just walk with you and accompany you on your personal growth and development journey. And I hope that uh, if that's something you're interested in, you uh, ask about it. And if you're interested in more information, you can feel free to email me directly at thearcofe at gmail.com. 
Also, just like there are other cool perks that are uh, available on Patreon. We do a monthly live episode. We have a lot of uh, mini episodes that we will put out every now and then for patrons. And we just hope that you are checking that out. BNB underscore pod. And that brings us to the beginning of our content. And so this is going to be really exciting. And because there's a lot of conversations that are happening in this context. There's just like, oh my goodness, there's so much to tackle in so many ways that Avatar plays into it. And so I, I'm, I'm just really excited to kind of dive in. The first thing that Brene talks about in this second chapter is worthiness and how really it's so interesting to me that the only thing that separates in the research, I guess, the only thing that separates people from a deep sense of love and belonging, those who feel that way, I uh, I am loved, I, I belong, and those that did not believe that, I do not, I, I, people don't love me, or I'm unlovable, or I, I don't belong here, the only thing that separated them was not believing that they were worthy. It's a sense of worthiness is the only thing that separates us, and that's just... Wow, that's so unreal to me because I think about all the characters that really struggle. I think about, you know, Korra feeling like she's unworthy of being the Avatar when she loses her powers and she loses her bending abilities. I think about Zuko pretty consistently feeling unworthy and therefore like he doesn't like belong in the Fire Nation unless he's regained his honor and... It's just there's so many different ways in which worthiness plays a role. And, you know, it comes into effect with, with body image, with uh, Toph and Katara, who talk about body image in in that episode in which they Toph tries on makeup and they go to the, do the spa day. And there's just so many times where worthiness comes up. And the quote that really stood out to me, or one of, I guess, is... If we want to fully experience love and belonging, we must believe that we are worthy of love and belonging. And that's just kind of the the synopsis of the whole thing. And I I guess the problem is we spend our lives really just trying to, to distance ourselves from the things that we feel icky about in our lives, right? We spend so much time trying to distance from that memory of when someone called us X, Y, or Z, or where we felt like we were not enough. We try to avoid that thing as much as possible. And we just try to like ostracize and get rid of the things that are a part of us that don't fit with who we think we're supposed to be as opposed to who we really are and just embracing our, our true selves, right? And we, we, we kind of stand, if we have our story that is holistic and whole, uh, we stand outside of it and we hustle for our worthiness by uh, constantly performing and perfecting and pleasing and proving. And this is, again, this is evident from episode one of Avatar The Last Airbender, where Zuko is training and he is like, I must perfect all of these forms. You will teach me the next one. And, you know, Iroh is not in a hurry because he knows that Zuko's worthiness is not hinging on this next firebending stance. But Zuko is in a hurry 
because he needs to be perfect in order to fit in and please his father, in order to attempt to belong. He is trying to fit in. And that's a that's just a tough example. Let's let's listen to it. Drill it again! Sages tell us that the Avatar is the last airbender. He must be over a hundred years old by now. He's had a century to master the four elements. I'll need more than basic firebending to defeat him. You will teach me the advanced set! Zuko, Zuko, Zuko. I... You know, it really just kind of reminds me again of this concept of scarcity that we talked about last episode where... You know, if we feel like there's not enough time or there's not enough anything, (laughs) what we do is we end up uh, acting from a place of scarcity rather than from a place of abundance. And that forces us into corners. And nobody likes to make decisions when we're first forced into a corner. So, yeah, again, this just really reminds me of this moment. So the irony, I guess, of this is... Our source for worthiness is derived from our story, right? It's de- like our worthiness hinges on our the good, the bad, and the ugly pieces of our story, right? Um, they become a part of us, and if we embrace them, what happens is there's this 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 inner belonging where we end up belonging to ourselves because we can we can embrace who we are and that sounds like oh cool lofty goal of like i'm just gonna embrace who i am and and love myself more and like i wish it were that easy um but we're we're gonna be talking about what gets in the way earlier but man it's not it's not easy so i i think this kind of gets down to the comments in on i think on page 33 of the book where there's just a, a list of the i'll be worthy when and with a with a blank space and then there's a list of of comments where i'll be worthy when i graduate i'll be worthy when i get a secure job i'll be worthy when i get married when i have children when i lose weight when i do x y or z and i think the hinge of this whole conversation is we are we are worthy now and it is not a matter of when or if we are worthy as we are right now the only thing that matters is whether we can believe it or not. And that's a big yikes. So and I, I think what will happen is over the course of engaging with these 10 guideposts is we will begin to see the practices that help us cultivate that worthiness and cultivate a sense of understanding that we truly belong as we are and that we are loved and lovable. Whew, it's a, these are heavy topics. Yikes. Uh, but that's going to bring us into love and belonging. And I really love, no pun intended, the definitions that she provides in this text. And I think that they're really helpful. So the, the meaning of love is really important to kind of dissect. And, and Brene Brown talks about this in her, in her book. But like we often are talking, we say, I love you. We have conversations that include the word love, but we never really discuss what love actually means with the people we're using that word with. And when we're relying on 
a language such as English, in which there's so much fluidity between definitions, we have to seek clarity in order to understand how we might be talking about the same thing, but we have completely different ideas about what that thing is. And these conversations are really difficult because what that means is we're admitting that we don't quite know. We're admitting that we are uncertain. And yet these things that we're discussing are things that we can't live without, that we would never choose to live without, right? I'm never going to say, I'm just going to have a loveless life. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need to belong anywhere. Uh, like we are neurobiologically wired to love and belong and connect with people. And so I think it's just imperative that we have this conversation. And so that's why I really just love these definitions, um, which we'll get to in a second. But like it, a key thing thinking about belonging is the difference between fitting in and belonging. And we've talked about this on the podcast in, in our hit long history. I'm almost certain of it. I couldn't, I don't know that I can point you to an episode, but the way it's described is when we try to fit in to a group, that is the primary barrier to us belonging in general. Because what we're doing is we are assessing a situation and in order to like discern what will help you feel like you can fit into the group, right? And this, you see this in school all the time where, you know, there's the quote, cool crowd. And then you see people who are trying to act like the cool crowd in order to be a part of it and feel like they can fit in. But it just creates a really toxic environment and it's dangerous because what we're really after is belonging, right? And that is, it doesn't require us to change who we are. In fact, it's the opposite. It requires us to be who we are, regardless of whether some of our, our actions or or the way we, we exist might rub other people the wrong way, right? Um, it's about finding our people and our, 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 our tribe, if you will, who can embrace who we are without having to make us change, right? While there are several examples of fitting in in all of these series in the, the comics and everywhere, one specific spot that I'm recalling is with Toph and her parents. And in season two, or book two, if you will, where Toph is, you know, in the night and in her free time sneaking off to do these earthbending Feats, and she's this champion and is hiding herself from her family and she's acting fragile and you know blind and incapable and I guess she is she can't she's not acting blind she is blind I know she is acting blind right she can see with her feet she's pretending she can't you know move through the world but I guess she's leveraging the cultural expectations of what it, how our abilities or lack thereof can affect our, our our engagement with the world and she does that so that she can fit into the the expectations of her parents and i'm just recalling this moment where she she breaks that mold and decides to stand her her ground <laughs> no pun intended Toph, 
There's too many of them. We need an Earthbender. We need you. My daughter is blind. She is blind and tiny and helpless and fragile. She cannot help you. Yes, I can. And then this girl goes in and takes down all of these Earthbenders who are, you know, professional fighters. And she just rips them all down and gets after it. And I think that when she does that, it is something that she is hoping against all hope that she will be accepted for who she is and what she has from her parents. And of course, we find out that her parents are not quite as accepting as we would hope, which is part of what makes this whole concept of love and belonging so vulnerable is that the problem is that love and belonging will always be uncertain right connection and relationship are you know we they are necessary and important in our lives but we cannot measure that right we anyone who attempts to define it is doing the best they can to answer the unanswerable right we can't put our nose on it and we can't measure it and we can't know whether someone is going to love us back we cannot know if we will belong in a specific situation by being who we are until we walk in to that situation right and man that's tough right love belongs in our lives and belonging belongs in our lives but and i think what's important about that is that they are integral and i think she talks about this in the book as well like we, you can't really speak of one without the other they're interwoven in this in this intentional knot where they they may be separate strands but they are they are connected in the same unit uh, and tied together and so ultimately again i think it's just worth realizing that you know like if you think about all the people that you love in your lives and Think about whether you have control over whether they love you back. And the answer is we don't. And that's terrifying. But how beautiful is it that we can experience love and know that that's part of why it's so beautiful is because often it is such a vulnerable a thing that we experience. Okay. Oof. Wow. That's a lot. Um, I, I think... One of the things that's worth lifting up again from this from this book, and I think I've I've said it already, but um, we are biologically, cognitively, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of the always <laughs> wired to love and to be loved and to belong. And when these needs are not met, we don't function the way we're meant to. And again, I think about this especially poignant arc of Zuko because, I, again, it's it's not a redemption arc. It's a it's a wholeheartedness arc. It's a journey to wholeheartedness. And when he isn't loved from his father, and when he isn't given this chance to belong, he doesn't function the way he's meant to. Right? He instead tries to do quote villainous things and when we act outside of our boundaries and our values and the things that we care about, we, we start to lose ourselves and 
not being loved and not having a place to belong exacerbates that. And just the same as, you know, being hungry or lonely or tired, um, all of those can help us lead out, act outside of our values as well. So ultimately, again, the absence of love and belonging, to put it to a point, always leads to suffering and hurt. So let's read these definitions together and uh, discuss just a little bit about each of them. So let's read the definition for love. And again, you can find this on page 36 of your text. Love. We cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known, and when we honor the spiritual connection that grows from that offering with trust, respect, kindness, and affection. Love is not something we give or get. It is something that we nurture and grow. A connection that can only be cultivated between two people when it exists within each one of them. We can only love our others as much as we love ourselves. Shame, blame, disrespect, betrayal, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love grows. Love can only survive these injuries if they are acknowledged, healed, and rare. And I think about that, like, like, do you really, do any of us really want this definition to be true? Because that's just terrifying. <laughs> like, do we want it to be true that we have to love ourselves in order to not limit how we love our children and our loved ones? I, I think that's terrifying, right? Like, loving our people, our, our tribe, the people that we, that we care about, loving them is often easier than loving our imperfect selves, right? And I, I think the way it's described... Um, in one of her talks is, you know, we can talk about our, if, like, if we're raising a child, we can tell our child that they are beautiful, that they are uh, gorgeous, and when they um, are wearing their clothes, they don't need to worry about what other people think. But if we don't love ourselves, they're going to learn from the way we treat ourselves just as much, if not more than, the way we speak to them. So if they see me in the mirror talking about, man, my my butt in these jeans just doesn't look good. And they're like, well, do you like those jeans? How do you feel about them? Because what other people think don't matter. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh no, <laughs> they're, they're watching me. They're thinking about what I'm doing. And the way we speak to ourselves and the way we interact and the way we engage with ourselves carries so much metaphorical weight in how we engage with uh, love and belonging and teaching love and belonging and instilling love and belonging in the people that we love. It's the same deal if, you know, our, our loved one drops milk on the ground and they're, they're like, oh, I'm such an idiot. And you're like, no, sweetie, it's a mis like when you make a mistake, that's not, you're not an idiot. You made a mistake. We all make mistakes, Right. Instead, if you if you then drop milk on the ground or spill your coffee and you say, God, I'm such an idiot, they're going to learn that from you and they're going to take that on, which is why we have to love ourselves in order to love others to the capacity that we would like. 
And so those are just a few examples. Um, but in general, I think it's important that we realize that loving ourselves is hard. And in order to love others well, we have to love ourselves. And apparently this is a pretty controversial topic. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, what you all are thinking about this. But I, I want to kind of pick apart what practicing self-love looks like. And it, there are several moments throughout the series where we see this, but it's, it's trusting ourselves. It's treating ourselves with respect. It's being kind and affectionate towards ourselves. When we make mistakes, it's understanding that it's a mistake and not a, a matter of who we are. And frankly, this is a lot when we consider how often we speak to ourselves with, with such harsh language. Like, I am very, very bad at this. <laughs> I, I wish I were better at it, but instead I am I'm practicing and I'm getting better, but I, it requires practice and work. And I have a theory about Cora here. So one of the things I really appreciate about Cora early on in, in book one of, of the legend of Cora is that Cora is confident and has an innate sense of belonging. Like she knows she belongs. Right. And I think a lot about how and why people dislike the legend of Korra. And I think this might be one of the reasons. I think that what we're seeing is we're seeing someone who has, they know they belong and people are uncomfortable with seeing such a strong person emotionally, like where, where they are and they're like, they belong here and they know that when they do something right, that they, they shouldn't be punished and they just are willing to stick up for themselves. And that kind of confidence rubs people the wrong way because we are most judgmental of others in areas where we ourselves are lacking. And when other people are constantly questioning their sense of love and their sense of belonging in the world, when we see someone who comes into the world and like, nope, I belong. We, we perceive that to be cocky and uh, we perceive it to be overconfident and egotistical. And that's a lot of the critiques of Korra are, are this. And I just, I wonder what it would be like if we kind of reframed the way we, we viewed Korra as someone who is, they know they belong, Right. So here's, here's a moment from episode one that I think is worth uh, lifting up from book one of Korra. You're in a whole mess of trouble, young lady. But there were some thugs threatening a helpless shopkeeper, and I... Panicked. You should have called the police and stayed out of the way. But I couldn't just sit by and do nothing. It's my duty to help people. See, I'm the Avatar. Oh, I am well aware of who you are. And your Avatar title might impress some people. But not me. All right, fine. Then I want to talk to whoever's in charge. I mean, you really, you gotta just love that spunk, right? It's, it is so awesome to see a, a, a person that is so confident that they're willing to be like, fine, give me the next person who's in charge. I'm willing to talk about whoever, and like, just willing to stand up for themselves because... It's so nice to have 
that modeled for us, that we can have boundaries and we can know that we deserve what we deserve and we can ask for it, right? And so, I mean, there are obviously ways in which we should pay attention to how we're doing that. And I don't know that Cora is <laughs> perfect in any sense of the word, but I do think that this is a, a neat way to reframe kind of her confidence as, no, she believes she's worthy. She believes that when she makes an action, she does it for the right reasons. And that's just a really powerful um, thing to consider. So I wonder if you, how, how you feel about my, my Cora theory. Do you feel like this is one of the reasons why people might um, find Cora to be not as quote, not as good as Aang, um, among other reasons. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts? Okay. Um, so again, just practicing self-love, difficult. Remember, we have to trust ourselves, we have to treat ourselves with respect, all that jazz. And I think that's just really integral and important to think about. So I want to kind of dive into the definition for belonging as well. So I'm going to read that now. So this is on page 37 of this uh, 10th anniversary edition. Belonging is the innate human desire to be part of something larger than us. Because this yearning is so primal, we often try to acquire it by fitting in and by seeking approval, which are not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but often barriers to it. Because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world, our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. And I think that's really important, that last line, like we have to accept ourselves in order to feel like we can belong anywhere else. Because if we never belong to ourselves, then how can we belong to anything else? And so that's why we have to, like, okay, if we need to love ourselves, we need to be able to accept ourselves. And if we need to be able to accept ourselves, we need to be able to love ourselves. This, again, it's back to this knot, right, where they're tied together and they're necessary to interact with one another. Okay, so that brings us to this, this concept that oftentimes we will say things that we don't necessarily practice. We will profess values that we don't necessarily practice. And we have to practice what we preach, y'all. Like love and, and action are integral to our success. And like, I, I think one of the things that Brene talks about is someone asked her if, like, can you love someone even though you have cheated on them? And a lot of people, like, the gut reaction will be, yes, you can love someone deeply and make a mistake, right? Um, but I, I think the way that Brene kind of explains it is you can feel love towards people that have behaved poorly. You can feel love towards someone and act another way. But the people that I want to be in relationship with are the people that do both, right? I want someone who practices and professes, right? And I think what's integral about the definition of love is that when we have those acts of betrayal or uh, neglecting um, each other or, you know, withholding affection or all of the, all of the things, shame, blame, etc., they have to be few 
and they have to be acknowledged and they have to be healed in order for love to continue. So can some someone come back from a moment of, you know, a betrayal of, of cheating, for instance? And I think the, the answer is yes, but it requires the healing process. And oftentimes that's where we fail miserably is uh, not doing well in the healing process and the accountability. So we have to believe that love is an action and we have to believe that there are that it is actionable. Otherwise, we can't be held accountable or responsible for for our love. And I think that we have to believe that they are integral and tied together to action. So, again, that what that kind of translates to is in order to love ourselves, we have to practice loving ourselves. There needs to be actionable items we can do in order to love ourselves and therefore others, right? Um, it's, you know... I think one example that I heard of is it's it's like secondhand smoke and smoking. Like I I can love me all I want and smoke, but in order to love the people around me, when I smoke around them, that secondhand smoke is is deadly, right? And so there's a lot of learning that we learned about secondhand smoke that uh, that it doesn't do damage, but it does. It does a lot of damage, and so. I think it's just worth lifting up that it's not an either or, but a both and. We must love both ourselves and others in order to reach our full loving potential. So, man, now that we kind of have grappled with love and we've grappled with belonging, uh, we totally get it and now we understand it and we are going to start doing it right away. Um, And that's the end, so there's no point in going on. <laughs> I wish it were that easy, <laughs> but unfortunately it's not. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a uh, look at the next chapter and we're going to learn about the things that get in the way of love and belonging and uh, dissect those a little bit more so that we understand them. up this next chapter, chapter three, the things that get in the way. Uh, She opens this up by telling the story of her worst speaking experience. And if you're interested in the audio version of Daring Greatly slash The Gifts of Imperfection kind of mashed together and slightly abridged, I recommend listening to um, the Audible. It's available on Audible and elsewhere, I think, but it's called The Power of Vulnerability. And it's kind of a mix between the two books. But one of the things I appreciate is she tells this story, uh, and it's a little bit more vivid than she, the way she writes it in this book. But anyway, here's a quick synopsis. Anyway, like This is the beginning of her first speaking experience that was to, quote, normal people, not you know researchers or scientists. And she arrives at the event, she's excited, and she's greeted by this woman who 
looks her up and down, is clearly judging her clothing, and says, you don't, you don't look like a researcher, and then learns about what she studies and says, you study shame? Oh my goodness. And, like, kind of has a, a breakdown and says, we can't talk about shame. People will be eating. And, you know, this is where Brene talks about how, you know, this is the first time she realized that talking about shame would make people barf and that maybe there might be an association there <laughs> and anyway this woman just kind of like belittles her makes her feel small and then says you will you will speak about this this is what i thought you were going to speak about and so you will do this and because bray Brene was acting from a place of scarcity and this is how she tells the story she says that she she agreed to do something that was outside of her values. And so she went up and gave this talk and she didn't even talk about the things that she knew about. She was talking about, you know, happy is good and, and joy is good and it is good to be joyful and it is good to be happy. And she walked away from that experience feeling, you know, slimed and small and sad, but the deal is when we are hustling for our worthiness, we agree to things like what this woman asked Brene Brown to do, and then we feel ashamed later. And when we know we are worthy of love and belonging, we are more likely and better equipped to say no and have clearer boundaries. Because I, like, one of the things Brene talks about is that later on, like right now, after having practiced this work, she would say, absolutely not, uh, and then walk out on this woman. But because she was coming from that, that hustle for worthiness, she agreed to do it. And I, and I think that we've all had experiences like that where we agree to things and then feel slimed and ashamed later, and we, we know that we should have said no. So I, I think... Another takeaway from that story is that she, the, the woman talking to Brene saying, no, people like how to, how to be happy. Give, give them five steps. And I think the problem is that how to doesn't work. And evidence over a long period of time has shown that it doesn't work because if it did, we would all have this down by now, right? If how to worked, we would all be we wouldn't have problems. We would be doing great. But unfortunately, uh, it doesn't. So what that means is then, if we want to engage love and belonging, we cannot skip the hard conversations about what gets in the way. We can't only talk about happiness and joy. We have to talk about shame and guilt and humiliation and embarrassment and all of the things that prevent us from leaning into happiness and joy and vulnerability and love and belonging, etc. And I found it particularly funny that Brene Brown kind of described this as the, the hard stuff as the swampland of the soul, because, you know, you don't want to live there, but you do want to know how to wade through it safely, which for me, is a really apt metaphor, but then I was thinking about the swamp benders and how they were all, like, loving living in the swamp, and I was like, oh, maybe that's not an apt metaphor for, for everybody. <laughs> but I, I do think for general rules, um, thinking about how we don't want to live in this marshy, swampy, you know, muckiness, um, but we do, in order to live well, we need to know how to get through it when we're thrown in. Um, 
So yeah, I think that's just worth lifting up. And one way I think about this is for like for how to exam for example is like we all know how to eat healthfully. We know how to exercise. We often know how to do the things that we want to do in order to get better. But with all of this, with all of this knowledge, uh, we are still facing insurmountable crises of debt, addiction, mental and physical health, violence, loneliness, among other things, right? This is not the, the end of the list, right? But we, we as a culture, are, are grappling with all of these things, even though as a culture we know how to eat healthfully, we know how to exercise. So, like, we, we, we don't talk about how we are too busy we are so desperate to numb these negative feelings that we're experiencing. We're full of anxiety. We're constantly hustling for worthiness because it has become the norm. We are living in a culture in which it is normal to hustle for our worthiness, which is why I think, again, when I think about us in, the, in that frame of mind as a culture, it makes sense that people are struggling to enjoy Cora because we're so judgmental of her when she is able to sit there and lavish her worthiness and know that she belongs. I just think it's really beautiful um, because she's awesome and Cora's great. And you should watch more Cora. Like, we should all watch more Cora. Am I right? Am I right? Or am I right? Okay, 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 okay. So this brings us to shame and shame tapes and what shame is. And so again, Brene Brown uh, defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing, believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. And that's terrifying because y'all, there are these, these, these shame tapes that play in our head and uh, described as like gremlins from like, I think it's the 80s movie where, uh, movie of the same title. But anyway, what's cool about gremlins is they kind of multiply in the dark, but when light hits them, they dissipate. And shame's the same way, right? And so let's talk about shame. And she says the shame resilience 101. First, we all have shame. This is, shame is universal. And it's one of the most primitive human emotions that we experience. And the only people who don't experience shame are people who are like psychopaths and sociopaths and people who are literally unable to experience uh, other people's pain. And so shame is universal. And two, we are all afraid to talk about our own shame, right? It's universally there too. We, none of us want to talk about why we're ashamed of something. And then third, the less we talk about it, the more control it has. And that's why it's so scary. It puts us in a position where not only do we not want to talk about it, but it's going to grow and metastasize with the less we talk about it. So we must talk about it in order to resolve it. So it's important to realize that shame is in all the familiar places, which is why it comes up so often, I think, in, in the Avatar universe, right? It's... It happens in our very familiar places. It happens in appearance and body image. That's the most popular shame trigger, I think. Uh, it happens in family, parenting, money and work, health, addiction, sex, aging, religion, all the things, right? It, like, shame lives everywhere. And the deal is, 
when we have stories that we believe will disappoint people or push them away, it often results in shame. And there's a real fear that we can be buried or defined by an experience that in reality is only a sliver of who we really are, right? Like, I don't ever want to, you know, I would never want to be defined by my worst experience. Oh my goodness, I have done so much in my life. I, have, I am 30 years old, and I think about how I could be defined by the one thing I did that, that ruined me. And I think about how we treat people who have been justice involved. And anyone who has experienced the justice system can, you know, be convicted of a crime. And then all of a sudden, that's the only thing that people associate with them for the rest of their lives. They can't get work. They can't do X, Y, or Z because they're constantly being judged by the worst thing they ever did. And I I think that that's something that is problematic about our, our system. And I mean, there's a lot of really cool nonprofits that help people find work that have been justice involved. And so anyway, I just, I I wanted to lift that up and I, I would, I would hope that people wouldn't judge me by my worst thing that I ever did. So I'm going to do my best to not judge people by their worst actions, right? We, we can be more than one experience. We are all more than one experience, but shame tells us the opposite. Shame tells us that we are going to be defined by that one experience. And so we, we have to hide it and, and feel, feel shame for it, right? So I want to kind of lift up this, this idea that we all have capacity for shame resilience and we all have this ability, right? We have the ability to recognize it, move through it constructively, and ultimately when shame happens, we can develop more courage, compassion, and connection as a result of the experience. But here's the deal. The less we talk about it, the less resilient we are, right? That's important. And um, the second part is it happens between people. Like shame is a, uh, it happens between people. It's not just an internal thing. It's based off other people. And therefore the healing for that also requires other people. Um, To put it another way, a social wound requires a social balm. And so the research shows that shame-resilient people have an understanding of shame. They can recognize what messages trigger shame. They can understand and name it, right? The second thing is they practice critical awareness by reality-checking expectations and messages. The third is they reach out, share stories with people they trust. Fourth, they speak shame. They literally use the word shame and talk about how they're feeling and ask for what they need. And that's terrifying, right? That's, it's so much. But here's the deal. We have moments where, where Zuko does this, right? The moment of his healing, he says, I was so ashamed. And then Iroh is like, I love you anyway, right? The, he is able to name it. And that's where he's most resilient. It's at the end of the series. And it takes him a long time to cultivate that sense of worthiness and belonging and love. And he took the whole arc to get there. But listen, this is why it's a wholeheartedness journey, not a redemption arc. It's because he's always had this. He was a loving child. He cared about turtle ducks. He was a loving child. And then he had this traumatic incident with his father 
And that took it away from him and it forced him to act outside of his values in order to hustle for worthiness. And so shame was the driver there. And that is what makes shame so drastic because this whole series wouldn't happen without this traumatic incident. And ugh, it's just, ugh, it's so sad. Oof. Okay, 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 okay. Um, Let's separate the difference between shame and guilt, shall we? So in the book we articulate shame is, to put it in layman's terms, I am bad. Whereas guilt is, I did something bad. So shame is self-directed and guilt is behavior-directed. And I, I think it's important to note that a lot of people believe that shame is a like really important and necessary tool for behavioral change. And there's a real problem with that because, yes, it is, a, it is the most powerful tool for behavioral change. But what happens when we use shame is we forget or, or ignore the means by which the change occurs, which it, the, the means are its destruction of self, its creation of conditional belonging, and it creates lasting intra and interpersonal wounds. And, and that's, a, that's a quote from Hillary McBride, who is one of my favorite um, clinicians out there in the world. And so... I, I think when you think about shame and it, how it changes behavior, it's also worth noting that shame is highly correlated with violence, aggression, depression, addiction, eating disorders, bullying. And again, I'm reminded of this moment at the beach where all these firebending children, are, or I guess the Fire Nation teens, are around this campfire and... Azula is talking about what her mother said, and here, here's that quote for you. Well, those were wonderful performances, everyone. I guess you wouldn't understand, would you, Azula? Because you're just so perfect. Well, yes, I guess you're right. I don't have sob stories like all of you. I could sit here and complain how our mom liked Zuko more than me, but I don't really care. My own mother thought I was a monster. She was right, of course, but it still hurt. This moment is so... It's so quick, because right after this, Tylee just comes in and says, and we're all happy again. And like, no, y'all, like, let's acknowledge this moment with Azula. Let's talk to her about it. This is our chance. And we missed it. Um, but when she says she was right, when she says that her mother was right, that, y'all, that is shame. That is shame speaking. And the re like it's highly correlated with violence, aggression, depression, addiction, eating disorders, bullying, and like, hello, Azula, violence, aggression, bullying, like all of these things are real for her. And we see her do those things throughout the whole series. We see her bully Ty Lee and May. We see her aggressive. We see, oh my goodness. So I'm just saying. This is, shame is a very powerful tool for behavioral change, but the problem with that is shame corrodes the part of ourselves that believes that we can change and do better. Guilt encourages positive change. Shame corrodes like the core of who we are, even though we may change. So I think it's just worth noting that shame as a, a behavioral tool is not okay. 
All right, uh, there's a lot more that goes on in this que- in this chapter, and the last one I want to talk about is um, moving away, moving towards, and moving against, because this is a really crucial moment uh, and crucial learning, right? So uh, moving away is when someone says something that's shaming and you respond by withdrawal or hiding or silencing yourselves or keeping secrets. Um, and so someone says something to you and you're like, okay. And then you like retreat and you run away, uh, towards moving towards someone when they, uh, say something that's shaming. Uh, for instance, if, if someone, um, were critiquing the way that I were raising my children and I, you know, I had to go away on a business trip and they responded to me like, well, I'm so glad that you have people that are able to take care of your kids for you. And I'd be like, moving towards would be, ah, I wish I was as good as you. I wish I could take care of my kids every day like you do. And it's just people pleasing and it's really, ugh, ugh. And then you want to throw up in your mouth a little bit when you, when you, anyway. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's what moving towards is, is it's appeasing the people and like, you know, making them feel better about themselves. Uh, moving against is trying to gain power over others. It's being aggressive and it's using shame to fight shame. So if someone's making me feel bad about the way that I'm raising my kids, I'm going to, you know, poke back at the way that they raise their kids. Well, I'm going to be like, well, have you seen your kids at school? Man, maybe they need somebody else to be raising them. And so it's, you know, using shame to fight shame, being aggressive about it. And I think what we are looking for is how do we stand our sacred ground when we are in that shaming moment? It's don't shrink, don't puff up, stand your sacred ground. And so rather than, I'm not going to run away, I'm not going to, you know, appease or please you. I'm not going to, you know, run against you. I'm just going to stand where I am and belong and know that I'm worthy and that I made the best decision I could in this moment. And we'll talk more about that as the days go on and as the episodes go on. But here we are. Here we are. Uh, this has been a longer episode. There's a lot to go going on. There's a lot more we could have talked about. I can't talk about everything. Ah, but it is what it is. So if you are uh, enjoying this, these episodes and you want to leave a comment or uh, a review on uh, one of the wherever you stream, that would be super helpful. Um, or if you want to engage more about the episodes, you can find us on all of the, uh, Insta media handle thingies. So, uh, BNB underscore pod is our handle. You can send us an email and if you prefer to engage via voice memo, you can do that and send us the voice memo there at the at gmail.com. But I, I guess that's, that's, that's close to the end there. So thank you for being here. Uh, next time, again, reminder that we're going to dive into the first, um, guidepost. So guidepost one, and we're glad that you're joining us on this journey. And if you have an idea for a cool segment, tweet at us, Instagram us, DM us, all the things, um, feel free to join our Facebook group and, um, we'll talk about the episodes and talk about the world of Avatar. Thank you to Brene Brown for offering us this text for, Uh, Alex Mayfield, Noah Blanchard, Max Gongware, and until next time, be well and do.